Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated Books on Cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name is John Bleasdell, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to David Koenig who has written what has to be one of the most perfect books for writers on film. It's called Shooting Columbo, The Lives and Deaths of TV's Rumpled Detective. It's a, a must for any fans of, um, of Columbo, of Peter Falk's iconic detective. And uh, we had a very good conversation about it. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to like, subscribe, and do all the things you can to spread the word. I really appreciate if you if you do that. Uh, if you want, you can follow me on uh, Twitter at Dr. John T, D-R-J-O-N-T-Y. But before you do any of that, please just enjoy the conversation. first sort of connection to to Columbo when you you know did, did you watch it as a kid or what was your I I did it is I, I was a very small boy when it first started uh in the early 70s but it became my mom's favorite tv show so even though I was a small boy and it was kind of over my head there was only one television set in the house back then and every fourth Sunday it was on Columbo um the other the other three nights of the week she would watch uh uh, Streets of San Francisco was really her favorite show. Um, but uh, uh, typically, typically Columbo started Sunday nights right after uh, the wonderful world of Disney. So the whole family would watch the wonderful world of Disney. 
then most of the kids would go to bed and my parents would watch Columbo and I would stick around and I was intrigued. And it was, even though I didn't understand everything that was happening, it was just that that character was so interesting to me. And it took me a couple of years before I finally sort of got the show and understood it, but watched it my whole life. And it, it became one of my favorite television shows. So unique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember what, I, I think I've got a similar relationship to it because I remember watching it as a kid in that, you know, um, pre-streaming way that you've just described, you know, the whole family sitting down to watch, you know, the Rockford Files or Dukes of Hazard sure. or, or whatever it was. Um, but then as a sort of watching it, I think I, I went back to it as like a student, you know, it became, it was like one of those things that would be on in the afternoon and being a student, <laughs> you know, right. you would be available in the afternoon to sit and watch it and, and becoming much sort of more intrigued in a way that I, you know, I never felt any urge to rewatch the fall guy or, or, or any of those other TV shows. Right. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I think it's a, a part that the show was so unique and well done Um and uh, always one, one of the reasons Peter Falk, who, who hated television, was obsessed with becoming a movie star. One of his uh, reasons he did it was that because he was promised that there would always be a feature film talent and budgets available. And that became a big point of contention as years went on as they tried to, to squeeze the budget and he didn't like it. Um, but also probably the biggest reason is, is the uniqueness and the, the lovability of his character and, and how much of himself he poured into that. And, and so people of, of all ages from all countries could sort of uh, latch on to this uh, curious fellow. I mean, that is, that is the thing, isn't it? It's, it's that, you know, um, he's such an unlikely sort of hero. And yet at the same time, that's, that's what makes him. And I love the bit in your book where you're talking about how, sort of how the character develops. Maybe you could explain that a little bit to, to listeners who might not have had an opportunity to read your book yet, but that, that process of sort of finding Columbo. Yeah, absolutely, which is, is so interesting because it started out, Columbo originated from a play called, in the early 60s, called Prescription Murder by Levinson and Link. Uh, these two fellows who would become extremely, probably the best known mystery writers in television. Um, and they wrote this play with a minor character of the detective um, who doesn't show up until the, it, it's halfway over. And he's just sort of this odd, curious fellow. He's uh, originally conceived was supposed to be a very large, stocky, imposing guy, your, your typical detective. And they mis he mistakes him as a, as a sort of a dumb oaf. He's this just big detective, mm. bumbling guy. And I'm the really smart killer and I can... I can trick him and move him around. And, but the detective is so persistent. Um, eventually he, he, he breaks him down and, and cracks the case. And so when Peter Falk was cast in the pilot prescription murder, he, he sort of stuck fairly close to that sort of plain calm character. He was a smaller, we'll say cuddlier version, but still it was fairly close to as written but when he agreed to do it as a regular series, he knew that that had to become a much more engaging character, someone that was a little quirkier that people would have interest in coming back week after week after week to watch. And his idea was to make Columbo Peter Falk, 
and all his idiosyncrasies he had in real life and all the reasons people loved him and that he drove people crazy. He show by show, episode by episode would build those into the character of Columbo so that by the end of season one, you are basically watching Peter Falk, the detective, you know, go go toe to toe with uh, with these very clever murderers. And the and the structure of the of I mean that was right from the beginning that was in the play right the structure of having the the murder sort of play out in front of you at the very top of the of the of the of the play in this case but in the in the TV show later on. Exactly, they called it an inverted mystery, which was not uh, unheard of but fairly rare in in literature. Not the conventional way you want to kick off a story, um, in which you would see the plotting and then execution of this perfect crime. Um, and then the audience would think, oh my gosh, he's got to get away with this. There's, he's made no mistakes. And then one by one, the detective would come in halfway through and, and find little teeny little inconsistencies in their story or, you know, little clues lying around that the audience didn't see. And you'd go, son of a gun. How did I not notice that? And pretty soon, um, you know, he would just have enough where uh, he would hang the guy. <laughs> yeah. And it reminds me, I was just reading a book yesterday and it said, um, uh, uh, if you want to make God laugh, make plans. And, uh, oh. and that, that seems to be the, that seems to be the structure of a Columbo episode, you know, the perfect it, murder. Exactly some, so. Yeah. Some tiny little thing goes, goes wrong and that's, that becomes a noose. Um, you, you were saying that, uh, so, so that Peter Falk basically absorbed, his his own personality and Columbo sort of you know meld into one in a way, um, but at the same time there was sort of very you know I I, I love it. it's almost like watching the scene in um, Richard Attenborough's Chaplin where he goes into the sort of wardrobe prop department and just picks out a bowler hat and a cane and big shoes and there you go he's he's got his character and columbus peter fox sort of does the same you describe him walking around and picking out suits and and raincoats and things like that yeah oh absolutely that uh, original wardrobe was peter fox's own wardrobe they'd originally wanted the character to wear like a big overcoat you know like a, an opposing detective of the 60s uh, might and he pulled an old beat up raincoat out of his own closet and that became his his signature costume the um the the gray suit underneath the drab pants there's this this drab green tie with little white spots that he wears in most of the first 40 some episodes the shoes were his own he figured if i'm doing this all the time i'm going to be comfortable and he he he's uh you know, leather shoes, brown leather shoes that he had had for years that were falling apart before the series even started. That became part of his his outfit. And in fact, he he loved those shoes so much that even after they literally fell apart, there's one episode in the fourth season in which uh, uh, he's supposed to jump out of or fall out of a tree. And a stuntman did it, but he wanted to wear Peter Fox shoes. And in falling out of the tree, he broke his ankle and Peter Fox's shoe had to be cut off his foot. And Peter Fox insisted on sewing those shoes back together so that hopefully he could, he could use them again because that was the signature costume of, of Columbo. 
and there were all these other little things like obviously there's the cigars. I'm always curious about the cigars because they look green. What what oh. are those cigars? <laughs> I don't know what type, but they were typically really cheap uh, cigars. He he does make reference in several episodes about what lousy quality um, his own are, but he he loves them. And a couple opportunities he has later in the series in which he's offered fine cigars by uh, uh, by the stately dis- uh, murderers, and he it's a it's a huge trait for him because he's used to you know these. these these old stogies, but everything about Columbo was supposed to be dingy and, and unassuming and the opposite, the mirror image of these clever murderers. And they would mistake him as thinking he was the opposite in every way. You know, they're, they're clean and neat and rich. And he's uh, this poor dingy slob and they would assume I'm brilliant. So he must be dumb, but that was the one thing they, they both shared was in fact, he was even smarter than them. I mean, watching them sort of back to back as I have been doing sort of uh, the last, well, over the summer, not necessarily binging them. I I tend to watch one or two a week rather than. um, Mm -hmm. But I do notice that there are real complexities in his performance. And you you point this out as well. Uh, I think it's the episode um, with Leonard Nimoy as the doctor and uh, that's a heart heart surgeon um, who uses the wrong... Uh, type of thread uh, as a web plot for, for, for killing a patient. Um, and you you point out that when he's sort of giving his final sort of summary of why why the person is a murderer, he actually gets really angry. And it's, it's very unusual to see Columbo sort of, usually it's kind of like he's almost apologetic. You know, he maintains that sort of calm of sort of like, oh, I'm really sorry about this, but I'm afraid we're going to have to arrest you, you know? Uh, but in this case, he actually he actually sort of loses his rag a little bit. Yeah, and that does not happen very often. It happens maybe three times in the run of the series, and and maybe for that reason, it's so impactful because it it completely it takes you by surprise. And and why it typically happens is uh, where Columbo realizes, okay, this guy knows I know he did it. I don't have to keep up the oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I oh, what was I thinking? Uh, shtick because time is of the essence. So he doesn't have time for that. And there's a moment near that end of the, the episode with Leonard Nimoy, the doctor, where he realizes, you know, if I don't t- catch this guy, he's going to kill again. And it's this kindly old man that's, that's about to lose his life. So toward the end, he, he really loses his cool. And it's not uh, a lot of that was on Peter Fox decision to take the character momentarily angry because it's it, it sort of hints at it at the script, but it doesn't say Columbo loses his cool. And Peter Falk just took that line and just slammed like a coffee pot or something on the desk and uh, and, and accuses the guy. It, it happened a couple seasons later in an episode with uh, uh, with Robert Conrad and would happen again many years later. But but really powerful moments because that's the last thing you expect is, is kindly old Columbo to lose his cool. It's funny that you should say that uh, he's, cause that's one of the things that I'm watching it and I'm thinking about how his behavior and his, his sort of uh, persona. Um, I'm trying, I'm always trying to work out whether, whether he's, it, it's, 
sincere is the wrong word, but whether it's shtick, whether it's an act, whether, you know, whether deep down, you know, whether when he gets home and, you know, uh, to his invisible wife, he sort of, he sort of, you know, becomes totally different person and becomes very, you know what I mean? Because it's it just, this is just a strategy for catching these people. Well, yeah, and, and that's a big point of controversy with fans of the show is when is Columbo lying? When is he telling the truth? Um, does he ever tell the truth? Is everything made up? And he go, maybe he really has a British accent and he goes home to his beautiful <laughs> wife and, you know, and... 18 cats and, you know, in this mansion and, you know, he's really a millionaire. Yeah. Who knows, you know, in real life, because that was the idea from the beginning is we want Levinson and Link as they devise the show, wanted the biggest mystery about Columbo to be Columbo himself. Mm. He, he wanted him to just sort of drift in, make all these odd statements and, you know, then maybe they're true. Maybe they're not. Does he even have a wife? That's a big, a big argument as well, um, or not. And then sort of at the end of the story, just kind of disappear. You would never see his home. You'd never see him at the police station. Um, you wouldn't find out too much about his, his real life, except for these sort of silly little stories that he, he'd used to throw the killer off, off kilter. Um, but yeah, that we could have that, that long argument about, is there really a wife? Is there really a brother-in-law? I know there's a dog, but what, you know, beyond, beyond that, what's real and what's fake. It's uh, you know, it, it's all up for debate. And yeah, it's very open for debate. It, it reminds me, there is a Jim Thompson novel. I can't remember the name. I think it might be population one, eight, Oh, two. But anyway, there's a Jim Thompson novel and there's a, like a, a lot, a, a sheriff in it. It might be the killer inside me. Anyway, there's a sheriff in it. And the sheriff is evil and um, he covers up his sadism with like cliches, you know, well, you know what they say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't. And he knows that he's basically needling people with this sort of like good old boy sort of, uh, you know, pre persona. And when I watch Columbo, there's a little bit of me thinks, oh my gosh, I think he might be doing the same thing. You know, he might just be torturing these people. Yeah, actually that's a, that's a great point. Cause it's the same principle at play in which the at first when they first hear these silly questions and disarming statements it, it's it's sort of a, a very low bar it, it's uh, you know it's it's to take them put them at ease and and make sure they feel as if they're not in any danger in any way but after there's always some point in the episode and and with a couple people it's early on but usually it's about two-thirds of the way in where they realize doggone it this you know this guy's on it and will you please shut up? And there's even one point in one of the latter episodes where uh, he comes back for, ah, just one more thing. And, and the guy throws him out of the house. He's like, no, no more things. No, one more thing. And he, he, you know, literally tosses him out of his house. <laughs> that's so funny because that, that that's always the way I'm thinking when I'm watching it you put your, you put yourself because you've seen the murderer you're kind yes. of like you're um, much more involved in the murder than you usually would be in this sort of show so it's not exactly empathy but it's you know you feel it's that Hitchcock thing that Hitchcock does in in Marnie where you you want the burglar to succeed you don't want the police or the the witness to discover the burglary taking place Um so I'm always just thinking, just run away. <laughs> just, just stop trying to answer his questions. Just run, you know? 
Yeah, because the murderer's always trying to help Columbo because he figures mm. he has no chance of figuring out my perfect crime. And he doesn't have the advantage that we have. And we know Columbo's really sharp and he's just playing cat and mouse with him. So we can't we can't tell him, you know, grab him by the lapels and say, stop helping him, close the door, <laughs> you know, don't <laughs> let him in, pretend like you're not home. If you see him run away. Um, but they think, you know, oh well, you know, he's this this harmless guy and they they help hang themselves. Absolutely. And the thing about the, the series as well, and, and this is one thing that, that is hugely rewarding when you're rewatching it today, is just the quality of the co-stars, the quality of the, of the people who are coming in and doing the, and the quality behind the camera, of course. You've got Steve Bochco, Boch, mm-hmm. uh, who went on to do Hill Street Blues, NYT, NYPD Blue. Did he do the Rockford Files or was that David Milch? I think it was David Milch, maybe. That was um, oh no! Uh, the, it was the, uh, the Sopranos guy, wasn't it? No, it was no. Um, uh, Stephen J. Cannell. Cannell. Oh right, okay. Yeah, who also worked on Columbo? Everybody worked on Columbo. Okay, <laughs> did it become sort of a university for TV for people it working was, in TV? Well, it was more than that because it was it was reserved for directors and producers who were very accomplished who were willing to do it. Um, but also for like the cream of the crop, the wonder kind kids who, you know, the Steven Spielbergs and, and, and Boschkos and such, who they could tell were going to be really big things. Peter Fisher, these, the, everyone who went on to be huge after Columbo um, got their start there. Yeah. And I mean, that, the Steven Spielberg episode is, is, you know, it's brilliantly directed. It's just, it's, it's, it is a, a miniature film. It's not, it's got no, um, uh, it could easily be released as a feature. Yeah, which is interesting because Peter Falk was initially against the idea. He was that was the second regular episode filmed, and he was like, "Wait, you told me we we're going to get the best of the best, these accomplished cream of the crop uh, directors and, and writers, and you're giving me this 24 year old kid? You've got to be kidding me!" And they're, they're like, "Give him a chance. Watch his. He's done a couple of uh, shows uh, in other series." take a look and he's like, okay, but I guess it's not that big a deal. The, the director doesn't really matter that much anyway. <laughs> and they, and as he's watching Steven Spielberg work, he's just becoming so, so fascinated by all his tricks and, and clever things he did and how he, he treated the actors and everything that Peter Falk from the beginning to the end of that episode went from having very little respect from direct for directors to by the end of the show, he wanted to direct an episode of Columbo and that became the biggest point of contention and massive fights and, and, you know, uh, drag down brawls through the end of that first season is because inspired by Steven Spielberg, Peter Falk wanted to direct an episode of, uh, of the show because Spielberg can do it. Boy, that looks fun. I want to give it a hand. Yeah. But I mean, he's, he's kind of not got the, 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 temperament perhaps for tv direction because he's so kind of indecisive you talk about his work process and how indecisive he is and how sort of slow he is about coming to decisions and things like that yeah a hundred percent and that's he found that out is uh, when he finally uh, uh, after three suspensions and and many many arguments and walkouts and sick outs they finally let him direct an episode and he discovered I'm not really well suited for this. He he did a pretty good job, but uh, I mean, it it just everything about it went against 
how uh, how he liked to work, which, as you say, was very slow and deliberate and not sure and had to do things over and over. Just one more take, just one more take, just one. If he was <laughs> part of everything, he couldn't do that. Just one more take being his, sort of just one more thing as a detective. It's sort of, it's right there. That's his behavior. I mean, it's also interesting because you say earlier that he wanted to sort of be a big movie star, but when he comes on Columbo, he's not a particularly established star. I mean, it's Columbo that makes him, isn't it? Right? Well, yes and no. Everybody knew who Peter Falk was. He was mm. a very well-known film personality at that time. But he was known more as like a, a, a supporting character, like a character actors. Um, you know, he'd always play a mobster or a, or a, in comedies like a second banana, like in the mm. in the great race with Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. Um, so he he was a, a very well-known film personality. Just he wanted to be a movie star. He wanted to be the lead, ideally, uh, you know, romantic roles or, you know, the hero. And Columbo was sort of the first opportunity for him to be the hero, but it was this unconventional kookier character and it was on television. Nowadays, you know, much of the best entertainment is on television, but back then, you know, the, in the sixties, when we saw the first of Columbo, it was, you know, Gilligan's Island and green acres. And that was the, that was television or how people viewed it. You know, Oh yeah, that's where, that's where you go to watch Batman and the monsters. You know, if you are right. doing legitimate work, you're uh, you're at the movie. So it just, people naturally look down on it. And in fact, Columbo would turn him into that movie star at first. It cost him a couple roles. Like he did a, a role on Broadway, the prisoner of second Avenue, Neil Simon, uh, a play. And then when it came time to turn that into the movie, um, they were like, uh, he's too well known for Columbo. And so he lost that role and that caused more, uh, friction on the set of Columbo. Um, but eventually he started getting those lead roles to where he did become the movie star that he always wanted to be. Um, and unfortunately lost Columbo momentarily <laughs> because of it. <laughs> right. But, um, I mean, it's interesting that you're, you're saying that about the where what television is like when Columbo arrives. And, you know, arguably it's totally different when, when you know, when it sort of peters out towards the end. Um, how much of an effect did Columbo have in, in changing that, in changing television and the way it was, it was being produced? I don't know that people watched Columbo and said, oh, that's that we've got to start making high quality television because of Columbo. Columbo mm -hmm. was one of of several shows that was different, that was, um, seemed to be a lot more intentionality went into it, uh, a striving for quality, especially uh, urged on by Levinson Link and Peter Falk. They, they demand, they weren't going to waste their time with it if it wasn't, you know, this, this top produced show. Um, <coughs> so that there were um, programs like that. And Col again, Columbo not alone, um, increased the frequency of it, but you had the studios who were always fighting the opposite argument. They didn't care how good it was. They knew there's three channels. People are going to watch our show no matter how, no matter how conventional it is. I won't say bad because a lot of the, you know, a lot of the old TV shows are good, but so many of them are similar in nature, very simplistic, uh, you know, a template that's repeated over and over and over again without the, the forethought that went into to shows like Columbo and, and many shows we have today. 
So going back to the uh, to the co-stars who who often uh, appear playing the murderers. <coughs> Excuse me. Although it's always inter- it's interesting to see uh, one of Peter Falk's friends, I think, and a guy who was in a few Stanley Kubrick films. He was in Paths of Glory and the the Killing, and he's a guy who runs the chili restaurant that uh, Columbo goes into. What's his name? What's his um... His name, he plays Bert, the guy at, at, at Chile. I'm drawing a blank. I know who you're talking about. Tall, yeah. tall fellow. But he was, uh, along with several other actors, were sort of from the, the, the John Cassavetes uh, repertory company. And they would, um, uh, Peter Falk learned this uh, trick from John Cassavetes and working with him shortly before he agreed to do Columbo the series is that one of the great things about um, having your own show or producing your own movie or, you know, being the lead in uh, in a series is that you have more power to get things like your buddies work. <laughs> so in almost every episode of Columbo, you'll have uh, a Bert, the, the chili vendor or uh, his uh, stand-in Mike Lally or his other stand-in Dick Lance or um, John Finnegan, or all, all these folks who were personal friends. They were actors as well, but they were personal friends of Peter Falk. And that's, you know, these eight or 10 guys, that's completely how they got the, the work is that they knew Peter Falk. And that was, uh, they, they always did a good job and it helped keep Peter in a good mood that he was constantly got to work with his buddies. Timothy Carey is the name. Yes, Timothy Carey. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Yes, this big sort of uh, almost Frankenstein-looking deadpan face, but uh, a a terrific actor who appeared in a couple of a couple of Columbos. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And 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 then you you have the sort of the the the, as I was saying the sort of the lead in a way because I think the murderer is is kind of probably on screen more than Columbo is because usually you have a 10-15 minute prologue in which before yes. even Colombo enters um who who are your favorite of those uh, of those actors who come in well the one the one who i think just epitomizes it does the best uh, uh for me at least is jack cassidy i mean he mm. is just so he was in murder by the book the episode with uh, steven spielberg um in which he plays the author who, who murders his his book writing partner who's had all the talent, <laughs> but he, he just is this perfect opposite of Columbo. It's a, it's like black and white. And he, he's the white with his platinum hair and his nice teeth and his smooth smarmy nature. He's, and he's so self-confident and so arrogant and just all the qualities of Columbo. He is the opposite, the flip side. So he's, and and he'd appear three times in three different episodes, and and I I love them all. There he's just the perfect. And many of them, Leonard Nimoy was was terrific. Um, Donald Pleasance, oh uh, yes, one appearance in which he's the the wine connoisseur, in which he was the first sort of sympathetic villain of of Columbo, who who didn't really want to kill his brother, but his brother was going to take away the one thing that he loved in life, which is winery, and his brother was so mean. So he's sort of identify with him. And toward the end, he's Donald Pleasant's like, okay, take me away, but can we have a glass of wine first? And they become <laughs> sort of friends at the end, which, uh, you know, Columbo had never done before. And that inspired a whole, whole rash of episodes with Johnny Cash and Mel Ferrer and, and others where sort of Columbo 
befriends, you know, and reluctantly arrests them at the end. Yeah, there's, it, it kind of plays into, um, you know, he, he's such a curious character in the sense that his curiosity is, is very much a core of his, his uh, personality. So that w- when he finds something that's really interesting that the murderer does, so uh, loving wine, he sort of dives into it and becomes almost a bit of a wine bore, you know, with Donald Pleasance. It, and... Absolutely. And it also helps in his... Uh is solving the case because the more he can find out about their area of expertise and what the, the mystery revolves around, the better chance he, he has of solving it. Mm, absolutely. Uh, yeah. I, I also love the fact that in murder by the book, the, the episode that you, you reference, you also po- point out in your book that um, the idea of an author killing his writing partner was a kind of amusing sort of twist on the two guys who have thought up, Columbo in the first place. Yeah, because they, even though Levinson and Link uh, produced that episode and were in charge of it, that initial idea was not theirs. It was a friend of theirs, uh, a famous film director named Larry Cohen, who uh, sort of a cult film director. He was sort of bumming around the studio and he was personal friends with them. And they, there was such a rush to get those initial story ideas made that they were just brainstorming ideas to do, you know, we've got to write six scripts in, in, in four months and have everything filmed and done. And what are we going to do? So they were pulling people in off the, out of the hallways to see, you got any ideas for a Columbo? And so they pulled him in and he's like, well, what about you guys? What if we did one about you? You know, the <laughs> one, the one writer has, has all the talent <laughs> And he wants to break off from the writer who has no talent. And so the other guy doesn't like that and kills him. And they're like, oh, my gosh, yeah, that's really good. And once that got around in the uh, the uh, studio, the joke became, you know, well, which one is the, the one that has no <laughs> talent who wants to kill the other guy? And that went on for, for weeks with, with them being teased about that. You, you quote a great story of Larry Cohen, I think in London, walking around a park with like a, a, a portable recorder and recording just how you could kill somebody. Oh, you could kill somebody like this. You could kill somebody like that. And that becomes, you know, five or six episodes that he throws out. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's what he, would, he did. And they paid him um, one year. They paid him six figures. He said, I don't have time to write anything, but I could think stuff up. And, you know, I'm head, headed to London on vacation for for weeks on end, I, I can't write a Columbo, but I'll, you know, think up some ideas. And so they paid him six figures to just walk around for a couple of hours here and there and, and just throwing ideas off the top of it, his head. And he submitted over 20 ideas for story ideas, several of which did become episodes of, well, what if it's a musical conductor? Well, what if it's a magician? Well, what if it's a, you know, that it, and what sort of natural plot could come out of that job description? And so, I mean, when you're when you're getting some of these uh, character actors who are coming in, and you get John Cassavetes, for instance, coming in and uh, as the as the uh, conductor, uh, and of course, at the same time, Falk is 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 probably has his most fruitful creative partnership in movies with Cassavetes. It's making his his best, arguably his best films. Maybe Elaine May's uh, Nikki and Mikey can can certainly stand up. It's, it always feels like the best Cassavetes film Cassavetes never made, you know, mm. um, which is not to take anything away from Elaine May. I think it's a, a superb film. Um, 
Uh, so he, he's kind of learning from Casavetti's and, and people like that as well, isn't he? He's not just, he, he's going away and having this film career, then he's coming back to Colombo and sort of thinking, mm, how could I use some of those lessons uh, in, with my character and with the, the direction of Colombo? Absolutely, because that, I mean, he was always a naturally indecisive person, but working sort of that improvisational, almost uh, uh, sort of working environment that, Cassavetes and Elaine May would work uh, with um, greatly inspired Peter Falk and also them encouraging him to put a lot of himself into the character. That all came from, you know, the idea for that came from his work with those uh, two people. So that that became his his natural working environment. He chafed at that the very first time they worked together. Um, but in time, he he grew to embrace it. And it it slowed him down even, even slower <laughs> to where that first season it took, uh, they were supposed to finish each episode in 10, 10 working days, 10 shooting days. And he was always pushing it to the end. And a couple of them went to 11, which was not good when you had no time to spare. I think one episode even went to 12 days. Um, but by the, by the sixth season, there was an episode that in fact, uh, one of the reasons was, is that he invited Elaine May to help work on it. But that one stretched instead of its 10 day schedule, they spent 30 shooting days on that episode. So that, I mean, you can see things really got out of hand. <laughs> I, I mean, part of that was him as well. Not uh, He didn't really learn the script until the last minute. And, and, and it's, it's sort of, it's a weird combination having that improvisation and a murder plot, which has to be sort of by its very nature, has to be work like clockwork, really. It, it, no, exactly right. And that was one of the big problems was he would try to try to have that that feeling as if we're weighing it. But you're right with a with a murder plot and exact clues that that create this intricate puzzle is you can't wing it with a puzzle. You can't you can't <laughs> shake up all the pieces and throw them on the table and and expect for them to, to fit together in some satisfying manner. And that did become a, a problem as the years went on. Um, especially in that one episode I, I reference, in which if you watch it, you're like, well, why is that person doing that? And it's part of it is because they were sort of making it up as you go along and, and that doesn't work in Colombo. Right, right. And and there's also the thing that like um, he, again, this is, I, I'm, <laughs> if I didn't keep referencing your book, it would sound like I'm the biggest Colombo expert ever, but mm. I, I'm only an expert because I've read your book. Um but the, I found it fascinating as well. There was a moment where he sort of says, well, why does he even have to investigate murders? Why can't it just be the character? It doesn't, you know, we don't always have to have a murder necessarily. Um, yeah, well, that all started with when he started working with Patrick McGowan, mm. who, who is this really powerful, terrific actor um, and director, but he liked to do things his own way. And he did not care for the program Columbo. He thought it was repetitive. He thought it was silly. He thought it was dull and uninteresting, um, but he really liked the character of Columbo. So he started getting Peter thinking about, well, why does it have to be a mystery? Why can't we have a Columbo comedy? Can't we have a Columbo horror movie a Colum you know we could put Columbo in a million different situations and he'd still be just as wonderful 
um, why does he always have to be in this Agatha Christie story? You know, that's sort of, sort of silly. So he kept getting Peter to try and think outside the box, which for me was a big mistake because the, mm. the more, and it, it, they ended up working together in about a half dozen different episodes. And especially later on as Patrick McGowan and, and Peter Fox started getting more personal control over the show, they could. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Build more of, of their preferences in, which was highlighting the, the quirks of Columbo at the expense of the, the mystery portion of the show. And for me, the character just works best within those confines. It was tailor created, tailor made to play off of different types, to, to be in, inquisitive for a reason, to you know, be tenacious you know, with the biggest payoff in, in these particular circumstances. And you just, you lose so much of the effectiveness if you put him in a totally different type of story. Yeah, you've still got that amusing character but you're not utilizing all his superpowers if he's not being able to, to, to play off them in the, in the proper circumstances. Yeah. It's even when he, I mean, I like the episode when he goes to London, but even, even that feels a little bit, you know, the fish out of water aspect of it. You sort of think, uh, I still, it still feels like, um, you know, somebody in the writer's room just throwing that out as an idea of let's shake things up. Let's send him on holiday to Spain, you know, uh, rather than, you know, there's a novelty aspect to it that isn't really organic. I don't think. Yes. Well, that, that, that particular episode was the first big, uh, was in the second season. That was the first big novelty episode. That was Mm. the whole purpose for it for NBC and universal television was for the second season, we need something big. And, you know, and, and happy days they had, uh, and Brady bunch, they'd send the people to Hawaii. You, could, you know, that doesn't really work for Columbo. So Columbo let's send him to the land of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, that was, you know, it was a promotional stunt is why they had that. And I remember as a little kid visiting the universal studios tour theme park, and they had a massive display of, uh, you know, watch this fall as Columbo goes to London. It was a, it was a huge promotion at the time. Would, did, would that have anything to do as well with, uh, you know, Columbo being popular outside of the US? I mean, I am, obviously I'm from England, so I watched it in England and he was a very popular character in England. Um, was that also sort of a nod to his international appeal, perhaps? Yeah, oh, oh, absolutely as well. It was probably very, you know, this being in the planning stages just after the first season, he hadn't really 
taken over the world <laughs> quite to the extent that he would, but they could tell he was becoming extremely popular um, uh, globally. And NBC was always encouraging them whenever we can, we can take him out of LA, the better. And uh, two seasons later, they would take Columbo to Mexico. And two seasons after that, there were plans um, to take Columbo to Japan. And they actually, uh, the writer and the producer actually flew out to Japan to scout out sites um, and try and fine tune what the story would be. And so if they had their druthers, they would have taken Peter Falk around the world, you know, <laughs> solving, solving mystery at every, at every stop. You talked about him, him getting popular, sort of not necessarily after immediately after the first season, but it, it growing and growing with the. Well, what do you think accounts for that popularity? Because um, it's sort of looking back, you know, I see it and I, I'm really enjoying it. I'm enjoying rewatching it, but um, it it is it is sort of it's strange television. You know, it's strange to watch. It's a strange character. It's not Starsky and Hutch. It's not you know. Um, uh, the streets of San Francisco with Michael Douglas. Yeah, and I think you just described uh, the probably the the main reason why it is is because it's strange and different and not uh, you know some American cliche of you know cop show. It's something unique, something different, and I'll, I'll always believe the greatest reason for its success was just the the innate lovability of Peter Falk. I mean, just it just as he is on that show is how he was in real life. And even though he would drive all his friends and uh, colleagues and wives crazy, you know, they, at the end of the day, they all just loved him because they knew he was a good person who was just trying to do his best. And he was, he was real smart and real funny and just, just a blast to be around. Um, but he'd drive them all a little crazy. And, and that's, that's the show. And it's just, I think people mostly want to hang out with that guy and the, the killing gives us an excuse to hang out with that guy. <laughs> yeah. It's that, that's like, that's why we like him having his dog or, or having his chili bowl of chili or, you know, uh, just getting to know his in idiosyncrasies. It's because you, yeah, as you say, you get this chance to, to, to spend some time with him. And even his car, he's got yeah, that great it, car that you mentioned as well. Yeah, that the Peugeot, which that was, uh, uh, he picked that one out off the universe a lot. And he and Levinson and Link, when they were planning the show, had many, many disagreements and arguments. And they're like, well, let's let them pick the car. I mean, you know, mm. <laughs> that's something we don't have. Let's save our, our ammunition for another day. And so they're going like, well, what about this one? Well, what about this one? Well, what do you drive this? And he sees that one at the far end and go, ah, that's, that's the car. And they're like, you've got to be kidding. This little French thing. What, you know, why, why would a Los Angeles homicide detective be driving that, you know, and it's, it's a very rare car. And he just thought it was another cool little thing that would be very Columbo-ish. And in fact, he was right. The dog, this car, the raincoat, the car, you know, all these things that, that anybody could see a picture of them and your first thought would be Colombo. Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned Los Angeles there. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a very specific Los Angeles. I mean, like it's more a Chandler-esque Los Angeles than it is uh, a 1970s, 1960s, 70s Los Angeles, right? 
Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of a, a they wanted it sort of be like a Technicolor Los Angeles, not mm. your typical grimy, dirty uh, surroundings. You know, dark, shadowy that you would see in a mystery. Um, show and in fact the first direct or uh, director of photography they hired Russell Meddy for the first five shows was an extremely well-known accomplished award-winning uh, cinematographer He'd done Spartacus and bringing a baby and work with Kubrick and you know he was this uh, you know a long list of credits and he insisted on lighting it dark like a you know I work with Orson Welles this is the way you light a <laughs> you light a mystery and, and they're like, no, 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 it's not that kind of mystery. It's, you know, it, it's this uh, not happy, but they wanted this lighter, uh, almost pastel look to it, which is they, for whatever reason, they thought would, would play best in the show. And they eventually had to bribe him with a, a box of uh, Havana cigars before he'd agree to, to light the show they wanted to. But, but yeah, it was originally, the play was originally set in New York and it was, um, the idea of universal that no, 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 let's change this to Los Angeles and it'll be this sort of lighter, brighter uh, atmosphere and a lot easier to shoot. Cause then we can go all over to these mansions, uh, you know, which a little harder to access in New York, but there's a, you know, there's Beverly Hills there and there's Bel Air there, you know, that, that could keep us plenty of, plenty of stately homes and, and scenes of the crime. I mean, that's what also makes it strange that he's this uh, Los Angeles uh, detect homicide detective. Because I've been to Los Angeles, right, and I've never wanted to wear a raincoat and a suit. You know, I mean, it's just not the climate. I mean, he, he does look more like a New York detective who who just hasn't got the memo about what the climate <laughs> is like. <laughs> that's that's exactly right, and I think that's again another another reason why it plays so well is is you know everything about him the the, the from the raincoat to the, the car and so on is the opposite of, of what you'd expect in his surroundings. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and you made the, the reference earlier to the fact that this is sort of like a high level, everybody, all the murderers are kind of rich and um, frequently with some exceptions, kind of um, obnoxious as well. So that you, you can you sort of glory in their downfall. Yeah, and that was that was the idea. And in fact, in the they actually had to make two pilots, mm. and in the second pilot, um, you know, they had a very uh, not very but a somewhat sympathetic uh, killer, and they didn't think that played as well. Mm. Uh, their first female, and so they made a vow from now on, you know, we have to hate all our murderers, and that that didn't that rule didn't last long. A couple of seasons. Um, but they just thought that that was more effective to have somebody you could root against while you were having somebody you could root for. That it was much more satisfying that when they were they were brought down from their uh, from their pedestal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's just so many great ones. You know, you have Roddy McDowell in in one of the early ones I remember, and Martin Sheen's in one, and you've got all these. They're not necessarily. It's Martin Sheen, maybe not the murderer, but is the right. He's the victim. He's the victim. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. And it's Martin Sheen before he's famous. I mean, that's the other thing is because you've got lots of people who are who are sort of famous now, but weren't particularly famous. Steel Spielberg uh, right, is, is right. exactly that. But then you've also got um, people like Vincent Price, and I mean, one of the people you mentioned who I don't think actually ended up, but was on their wish list was Orson Welles, right? Right. Yeah, and that was going to be for a episode in which the magician is the killer. The part ended up going to. 
Jack Cassidy, who was willing to do the the job for half the price that Orson mm. Welles wanted. But uh, uh, Orson Welles was a, 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 an accomplished amateur magician, so that seemed like a natural thought to have him. So he was the the top of the list to do that show, and that unfortunately never happened. But uh, Jack Cassidy filled in ably. Yeah, he would have been brilliant though. That Orson Welles, uh, yeah, he could he could he could command the scene. Yes, <laughs> it would have been great to see them play off of each other. Right, exactly as well. Two two actors who weirdly I think would have gone well together because they're both kind of instinctive and kind of big, you know. Yeah, and that was in fact the the actor who most enjoyed seemingly working with Peter Falk uh, was Robert Culp, mm. who just loved to work the same way Peter Falk did, which was to take a line and then let's try that with a couple different words, you know, instead of that. Okay, let's try that with different inflections. Let's play. I'm going to throw you a line. and You're not going to quite be ready for it. And they both loved working like that. And so they ended up working together four times. Mm. Um, and it was just, uh, it, it clicked so well. Was there, were there any co-stars that he, he really didn't get on well with or, or, or you know, there was a, a, a bust up? Yeah, there were. Um, mostly he, he realized he was the, uh, the head of the house. And these were his guests, you know, the guest stars were coming into his house so that he, um, you know, wanted to make sure they had a good experience. It was a reflection on him. So it's, mm. it's not like he invited folks onto his show and then gave them a hard time. Mm. But there were stars over the years who sort of uh, uh, chafed against the way he worked, you know, who, who didn't exactly, um, you know, uh, sync with that method of, of working. They wanted to learn their lines, deliver them as written and move on to their next job. And he wanted to play with them and milk them and toy them and experiment. And, and so there were some, I know, uh, one of, in the first season, he did a, a show with Eddie Albert and Suzanne Plachette who were really lucky. Suzanne Plachette was a personal friend of his and Eddie Albert was somebody who'd, who'd heard of, you know, had never had a chance to work with Peter Falk and had, was really looking forward to that. Um, and then it, it became such a difficult experience that by the end, they're like, never doing that again. <laughs> that, that was that was not my, my cup of tea. And then there were others that, uh, uh, like Dick Van Dyke, who had a, a good experience and they were friendly with him, but they just didn't you know, just the dynamics of it, it was not there, mm, mm. you know, not the way they like to work. Right, right. It just didn't click. And you said earlier that, you know, Peter Fox is a really nice guy and you really get the feeling from this book, you really get the feeling of his his personality and his warmth. Um, but as the as he becomes more famous, as the series go on, he sort of, his demands get a little bit more and he has this brinkmanship before signing for the new season of kind of like, always uh you know um pressuring the studio and the and the tv company that he might be leaving this might be his last one he might not come back um and, and that kind of ends up being sort of damaging to the to the to the series as it goes forward right it does and, and part of that was it's a great term brinkmanship I, I wish i would have included that in the book because that that describes it perfectly is he wanted his main desire was to make the show as great as possible. And he knew he had captured lightning in a bottle. 
And he wanted to ride that, you know, as he thought, first of all, he should be compensated. Uh, he's got one of the top shows on television and he only did, you know, a half dozen episodes a year. He really should be highly compensated for that. And Universal was like, well, you're just a television show, you know, and you're just one of the actors and you're, you know, that's, you know, they didn't understand uh, uh, or at least were not willing to, to compensate him for his value um, to it. Uh, and as well, they were making television shows of which they made 30 series a year. So they were cranking them out. And, you know, if you're not going to work cheap and fast, I'll find somebody else who is. Um, and that's not the way Peter Falk wanted to do it. So it, it was just this constant fight uh, over part money, but primarily over control and what type of show it would be. And Peter Falk, to his uh, praise and detriment, um, you know, was always fighting for better uh, writers and directors and co-stars. And he didn't always have the best judgment. You know, a lot of mm. his work with uh, uh, he brought Elaine May into work on two of the shows, who's a tremendously talented uh, director and writer and has done brilliant work. Her work on Columbo was not among those, <laughs> you know, the high points of her career. It's just not something that was well suited um, to her talents, but he figured, Oh, she's, she's brilliant. I trust her with anything. She can do a great job. He bribed her with lots of money. And, you know, it, it, those are two of the weaker episodes, the, the ones she worked on. So it's good and bad. And, it, and at a certain point, Peter sort of priced himself out of, out of the market and uh, made people, he drove them so crazy that they were like, okay, that's it. We're done. And he, you know, who was constantly threatening to quit for seven years when they finally cut the cord, he was like, wait, wait, what you say this, what you, you know, he expected, he thought it was just part of their normal tug of war and that he'd keep doing Columbo. He'd make a Columbo or two or three every year for the rest of his life. And when it finally stopped and ended up starting again, 10 years later, but when it finally stopped, he was just completely floored and shocked. He didn't think, you know, this is NBC has two hit shows. Well, one of them, how, you know, how you wait, what? Mm -hmm. So it was, a, it was a shock to him when NBC uh, uh, let Columbo lapse. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's that as, as, as we're going on, I haven't, I obviously I'm, I'm on, I think I'm on season four at the moment. So I, I haven't got into the later Columbos and I don't have much memory of them. The ones that I'm watching sort of are very, very familiar. So I don't have much memory of him as a, as a sort of old Columbo. Um, is there any point at which it sort of jumps a shark or is the fact that they cut the cord sort of prevents that from happening? Well, you could, you could, uh, um, I guess that would be personal preference. Mm. You could tell in the, in the later that made the show for seven seasons, then NBC was done. And mm. so it sat for 10 years and then ABC brought the show back um, originally six episodes a year. And then it ended up being, you know, one or two episodes every year or two or three, you know, just sort of, sort of specials. And those first seven years were just brilliant all the way through. Um, you can tell um, there's a clunker every so often. And as the seven seasons went on, you know, the, the clunkers became a little more frequent. But then when they brought the show back, uh, the clunkers became a lot more frequent. And so jump the shark. I don't know. You could some people would argue that if, if your reason for watching Columbo is I want the best made, sharpest written, brilliant uh, story ever. That one's good. 
that one I reject. And there was a lot of rejects at the end. But if you were somebody like me who was just happy to have more Columbo, you know, <laughs> any day with Columbo is, is a good day. Um, I'm just I'm just thankful for all the episodes um, that we're lucky enough to get, um, uh, even if some of them aren't, aren't as good as, as some of the high points. I mean, it's, in some ways, it's sort of like the fact that they were only doing, say, six or seven episodes per year, and the episodes are sort of tend to be over an hour, an hour and a half long. So it, it always struck me as a sort of this is like a, these are like movies, you know. I mean, uh, I know there's a lot of um, sort of slightly snobby ways of talking about television sometimes where people say, oh, it's not a 10 episode tv show it's a 10 chapter movie you know i think that's uh, yeah come on it's a tv show fine <laughs> but with uh, colombo it did kind of feel like you were watching a a, a mini movie so, so to speak yeah and that was uh, as i think i alluded to earlier that was that was the directive is that peter falk really didn't want to do a television show when he agreed to do the pilot they viewed prescription murder as a true pilot and if it mm. was if it took off it would become a series and if it didn't it was just a, a one-shot and Peter Falk viewed it not as a pilot. He viewed it as a television movie, this big budget television spectacular that I do once and then I never do again. And it, it took a series of circumstances, including the fact that it would be like he was making six movies a year rather than a you know weekly television show for him to agree to, to do it. And, and the budget was almost in the beginning was almost a half million dollars per episode, which was huge at the time. And the quality of directors, and as you said, co-stars. With I mean, that one episode with Martin Sheen, the killer was Vera Miles, and there was a, a Vincent Price, and I mean that was just one episode. You had three, you know, name huge movie stars all all at once, and that was every week all the way through. So it was a it was a big event. But and in and in your in your book as well, you talk about how the 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 music and the set design. You sort of have separate sort of mini chapters on those as well. And I, I was really intrigued by the music when when you pointed out, and it's something that never occurred to me that Columbo doesn't really have a theme tune. It's not like, you know, the theme from Columbo isn't. You know, it. I can't. I couldn't whistle one. Put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, part of the reason for that is that. Um, it was part of a what they called a wheel, which was several shows on that rotated in that that time zone. So the wheel, the NBC mystery movie or Wednesday night or Sunday night mystery movie had its own Henry Mancini theme, um, but not each particular program. So that was one reason. The other reason was um, the composers didn't think, you know, he they thought he was sort of a theme unto himself <laughs> that he was, he would provide the music. And in fact, in later years, he actually would where Peter Falk latched onto this song, this old man. And he thought it was such a good, good match to the character that he started not in the script. This was 100% him in some of the episodes starting in season three, where he just suddenly just start whistling or humming, humming this old man, just because he felt like it and they left it in. And after a couple of years of doing that, they started writing in. They knew uh, the writers knew Peter Falk liked the tune and they'd start writing it in. And that sort of became sort of his unofficial theme song, even though it was, you know, originated off the cuff by by Peter. Yeah, I mean, that, which, which is matches so much of of the show and so much of the iconography around the show that he puts together. What do you what? Um, 
what led you to write the book? I mean, I, I can understand, you know, a uh, love of something, but, um, you know, writing a book's a, a solid commitment. And so where, where did you, where did you, uh, how did you get there? Well, me, I, this is my eighth book and all mm-hmm. my books are about topics that I want to read a book about. Right. I've always wanted to read uh, a book about, uh, you know, my first book was about behind the scenes at Disneyland and all right. everything that goes on backstage. And at the time there was no book. Now there's 50 of them, but at the time there was no book like that. And I'm like, somebody should write this book. It doesn't exist. And so that led me to several years of research and interviews to write it. And every single book I've, I've written, I would have preferred somebody else wrote it and went to the trouble to spent the many years of research and, and interviews. And then I could just send over my $20 to Amazon and, and enjoy the fruits of their labor. And I always wanted to know what went on behind the scenes of, of the making of Columbo. I knew there had to be, there had to be uh, uh, great stories um, where did these ideas for the clues and the mysteries come from? What was Peter Falk like to work with? Um, and that's where Shooting Columbo came from. There was one other earlier book called The Columbo File that was good, but you could tell in reading it, oh, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that the author's not sharing. What is it? What, you know, what was it really like back there? And that's what led me to the book was intense curiosity about knowing the truth about the making of this this great favorite show. I think it's so fascinating as well when you have something which is almost like the furniture in your mind. You know, it's like something you've, mm. I've always lived with Columbo, like I've always lived with the Beverly Hillbillies or something like that. Yeah. And so to just sort of suddenly suddenly stop for a moment and pay attention to it and go, wait a minute, how how odd is that show? You know, and how strange is it that that has such a lifespan as well? You know. Yeah, uh, agreed, and that's uh, and that was the reason uh, uh, behind it. Do you think? Do you, uh, what do you look at in terms of its legacy? Is it something which just exists on its own, or do you th- do you look at other things that came afterwards, or even you know later on at the same time, and think ah, that that wouldn't have happened if Colombo hadn't happened? Well, it it certainly spawned a number of uh, not quite copycats, but uh, was sort of quirky detectives, right? Um, you know, Cannon and Banachek and, and the probably the, the most successful well-known example in the early days was Kojak, which was intentionally devised to be the flip side of Columbo. Columbo is sloppy and has got all this scraggly hair and he's, uh, you know, sucking a cigar and our guy will be clean shaven and, you know, obsessed with cleanliness and he'll be sucking a lollipop and he'll be, you know, underplayed and he'll be overplayed. Um, and many other of those sort of interesting, the Rockford Files, you know, unique detective characters. So it started that and, and continues with, uh, you know, it was direct uh, uh, ancestor of Monk, and I'm sure, and I'm sure many other shows that that survive today. But uh, um, that I think is the most direct line I can draw. Mm. <laughs> Coincidentally, I got a um, I got an email from Tony Shalhoub today. 
I can say oh. no. I could say no more, but ah. <laughs> that's an interesting. All just, right. Well, I, I look forward to your next show. <laughs> no, I wish. I wish. He's, I, I don't think he's going to come on. Um, uh, but but I I just love Tony Shalhoub. I love his. I love him in Barton Fink. He has one of the best lines of any movie ever, where he says uh, he tells Barton Fink uh, if he wants to talk to if he wants to talk to someone about writing movies, um, you know. He wants to meet a writer, throw a rock uh, in here and you'll hit one. And then he, t- he stops and turns around and goes, throw it hard, think, throw it hard. Oh. And that's my... <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're based in California, right? I am. I'm in California, except not yeah. far from Los Angeles in the, in the mansions. Right, right. So you, uh, if you, do you, have you gone on your sort of location visits of, of various Oh, oh yeah. Uh, there are a lot of the mansions from Colombo are still around. And uh, um, right before the book came out, I went through, uh, uh, it went through Los Angeles and Malibu, Bel Air, Beverly Hills and uh, Pasadena and uh, taking photographs. And then, and then today I'm um, going down to Newport Beach to the, the scene of a couple of the the shows and, and to, to plan a special event. So it's, uh, oh, wow. it's nice to see that that'll quite a few of them are still around. How, how has, how is Columbo fandom? Cause I imagine there must be uh, a fairly dedicated cater of, uh, of fans. Yes. Yeah, no, it, it's, uh, it's by the millions. The, the book uh, has not come out that long ago and it's already sold many copies. I've received so many messages of support of people who've been waiting for a, a behind the scenes book like this. Um, the social media community is huge. It, it was Columbo was on a gazillion different stations uh, and, and streaming platforms um, uh, up until recently um, when NBC, the owners uh, or uh, Universal's tried to consolidate uh, it primarily onto their own uh, platforms. Um, but yeah, it's still extremely popular and, uh, which makes me very happy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, I mean, there, there was an idea in the time, in the years that Columbo was being filmed, you know, 1970s, 60s, 70s, that you have like, um, I remember the BBC were, were using the original film of their programs and reusing them, just like taping over, uh, you know, historic programs there's so many things that were lost maybe a bit earlier maybe 50s and 60s this was more um but it, it is it is remarkable that there's so much from those years that that we do revisit that's that that is has that quality yes and, and hopefully this will be around forever and and my great-grandchildren will will be enjoying colombo one day what's your favorite episode my favorite episode, uh, uh, probably the ones I, the two I enjoy the most are the Donald Pleasance episode, Any Old Port in a Storm. Um, I just love the dynamic between the two and the uh, Jack Cassidy magician episode, Now You See Him, which is just, uh, you know, just over the top fun. Those are, those are my two favorites. Right, right. I mean, it's it's there's so much to to loving Columbo because you do have Peter Falk and you do have the the thriller aspect, but of course you do have also have a lot of comedy in there. Yes, yeah, and, and most of it flows out of his his personality. Quite a few. They they would start writing more comedy in as the seasons progressed once they knew what they had to play with. Um, but in the early seasons, in particular, just so much of that is off the cuff from Peter, just Peter being Peter and, uh, 
you know, going off on tangents and detours of things that weren't on the script to draw personality out of. I love that. Uh, there's an episode where he goes to the tailor to have a suit made. And uh, because he's, it's a clue he's trying to look up, it's not, you know, but his, um, his conversation with the tailor is, is just like a comedy skit. It's just, uh, it's, you know, he has to have it for Saturday because he's going with his wife to the Legion for a dinner and they're going to have bingo and stuff like that. And it's just That's absolutely, it. absolutely beautifully played. And the guy who plays the tailor is, is just absolutely wonderful as well. Um, I, uh, I just have one last question. <laughs> one more thing? Yeah, one more thing. Yeah, oh, damn it. I ruined my I ruined uh, my line. Cut that back. Yeah, <laughs> rewind. Oh, oh, David, David, one more thing. Yeah. <laughs> um uh, uh, we're recommending film books uh throughout this uh, podcast series. So have you got a favorite film book or 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 film books that you would like to recommend to our listeners? I do. It's a, my favorite book is one I've read over and over again. And it, it, it's part because it's about uh, my uh, favorite uh, uh, film stars, but also part because it, to me, it's just so fun to read. And to me, if it's, if you're writing a book about say horror movies, that book should be a little scary. It should, and if you're writing about comedians, it should be a funny, fun book. And, and this is, it's a book about the Marx brothers. It's mm. called, uh, uh, Groucho Harpo Chico and Sometimes Zeppo by Joe Adamson, which is one of the fil first film books I read uh, when I was young. And it's just if, if you like the Marx Brothers, it's just fun all the way through while incorporating a huge amount of behind the scenes information and one that that got me started along the way of being interested in taking films and televisions, uh, programs and theme parks and looking behind the scenes and telling their story that that people didn't know before yeah i've got to look up your disneyland book because that sounds really fascinating as a subject oh, as well and it is <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i've been to disneyland i went to disneyland and i was uh sort of i had we we went with with our kids and i was kind of reluctant it was some friends who were saying you oh, know you've got to go you've got to go and i was like oh i'll bring a book you know i'm not going to really enjoy this mm. and then you know midnight was there and i was like no i don't want to go home no. <laughs> <laughs> what a, what happened to the go i would have no they're closing now you have to go home so yes <laughs> wonderful wonderful well thank you so much david i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me uh, about a subject and this book as you, I, I'm not surprised that it's doing really well because uh, in the fan community, because I think there are a lot of fans out there and there are a lot of people. Do you think I, there was one time um, somebody did a little mock-up of, I think it was Mark Ruffalo from a shot from uh, the Zodiac Killer film. So he was in his 70s garb in a, in a 70s style car and they just put the Colombo sort of title and, that, and I was just thinking, oh, God, yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing Mark Ruffalo sort of do a Columbo or an Oscar Isaac do a Columbo. You know, there's a few actors, Michael Shannon, he'd make a good Columbo. Is there anyone uh, who you think they could bring the character back or is it too, it has to be Peter Falk, so just forget about it, go and do something new? Yeah, well, it will be difficult because it's like, how much do you read, do you try to do a caricature of, Peter Falk and how much do you make it original? And both of those options are probably no win. You know, it's mm, a very difficult mm. thing to pull off because you'll always be 
compared to what you're trying to do or what you purposely avoided doing. So it would be certainly not impossible. And it's something I know will come one day universal for many years and continuing to this day is working on ideas on how to bring the show back, how to reboot it somehow and what direction, how do we change it up and make it relevant and uh, uh, yet still tied to, so it's still Columbo there. It's going through a lot of litigation with uh, uh, the estate of Levinson and Lake right now. So I think that must be resolved before a, a reboot ever comes, but uh, eventually, I mean, everything else has been remade. Eventually it will be. And yeah. uh, um, I look Maybe- forward to the arguments that will flow through <laughs> the discourse. I mean, we've had Magnum and we've had yes. Hawaii Five O, and we've had, yeah, we've had a load of those. And I, I don't think any of them have been particularly successful. I mean, I might be mistaken. They might, might have all, you know, yeah. But it's hard to think of any that have sort of equaled or surpassed the original. Right. Brilliant, David. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Take care. So that was my conversation with David Koenig, uh, the author of Shooting Columbo. It was brilliant. Uh, well, I enjoyed it. It was a great conversation, I thought. It gave me an opportunity to talk a lot about um, and find out a lot about one of my favorite TV characters, certainly one of my favorite TV detectives. Um, his recommended book was Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and sometimes Zeppo, A History of the Marx Brothers by Joe Adamson. I'm going to put that on my reading list. We haven't had that one. That's not been... Uh, that's not been recommended before so uh, apologies for um, having a little bit of a um, uneven sort of schedule schedule in terms of uh, uh, putting episodes out this has been because as you will already know from previous podcasts that was because of a very hectic festival season which went Locarno, Sarajevo and Venice uh, one after the other in, in close close proximity. Hopefully things are going to be getting back to normal now. We've got some guests lined up. I've got some guests lined up and I'll be uh, I'll be putting out episodes on, at the usual time uh, on a weekly basis but um but it's been a lot of fun and I will be uh, I will also be putting out a live episode from Venice uh, which I just need to to put together in time as an episode so I'm going to put that out a little bit later on this month um, hopefully you're enjoying the the podcasts hopefully you've uh, uh, if, if you've been missing them you've been going back and listening to some of the older ones that's always a good fun thing to do um, if you have any suggestions for guests by the way by all means uh, send me an email uh, it's drjohnt at gmail.com, but it's D-R-J-O-H-N-T-Y. So it's a little bit different from my uh, my Twitter handle. All that's left is for me to thank Elliot Atkins for the music and uh, Ali Harwood for the art. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to Writers on Film.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.